Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. You're listening to Ohio versus the World, an American history podcast. Subscribe and follow the show on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. And don't forget to join the conversation on Facebook or at our website, OhioVTheWorldPodcast.com. Ohio versus the World is part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. Go to evergreenpodcast.com for all our past episodes. Now here's your host, Alex Hasty. Welcome back. It's the season seven finale by our count, the 99th episode of Ohio versus the World. Thanks so much for listening to the show this season. Thanks to all our great knowledgeable guests and to our friends at Evergreen Podcast Network. We are committed to another season of the show, so we'll be back in early 2023 for Season 8. We've got a really fun show for you today. As some of the listeners may know, I'm an attorney. I do quite a bit of criminal defense, but the majority of my practice these days is what we call liquor law. I represent bars and restaurants, but I also have a major focus in my practice on special events, permitting uh, for festivals and music fests, cultural arts fests, whatever. Really enjoyed watching the two Firefest movies, if you've seen those, Fire Fraud and the other... Uh, on Netflix during the pandemic, and the three-part recent documentary, Woodstock uh, 99, called Trainwreck. Super excellent. Go watch that on Netflix. I was at Woodstock 99 as a high schooler. There without my parents' permission. We can talk about that later. But Firefest, Woodstock 99, there's an appetite out there for these failed festival documentaries and podcasts. And we're going to tell the story of Ohio's most failed festivals some failed more than others. Certainly, one was largely a huge success, except for one bad year. But much like those documentaries that I find so interesting, it's just the planning and the concept of how these festivals go awry uh, are so fun to look at. We find four such festivals from the 20th century in Ohio. We've got four amazing guests uh, set to join us. Chris McNeil, the great Cleveland sports Twitter personality, better known as Reflog underscore 18, if you like laughing at Cleveland or Cleveland sports, give Reflog a, a follow on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, wherever. He joins us to discuss the ill-fated Balloon Fest 86 in Cleveland, Ohio. We're also joined by Tim Trad, the man behind the great Only in Seabus social media accounts. Tim joins us to discuss the economic failure that was Ameriflora 92 in Columbus. If you don't know about Ameriflora, we can't wait to, to tell you about that one. We'll play a clip from a friend and a many-time guest on the show, Jerry DePizzo from the great Ohio band OAR. Jerry and I talk about the disastrous first rock and roll festival show, maybe in the country, a festival called the Moondog Coronation Ball, put together by an Ohioan credited with inventing the phrase rock and roll. The famous 1950s Cleveland DJ Alan Freed will talk about his career and the Moondog Coronation Ball. And lastly, we'll look at the World Series of Rock Festivals from the 1970s in downtown Cleveland. The disastrous 79 World Series of Rock show will be joined by friends of the show, and fellow Evergreen Podcast Network host Vince Tornero will get some great clips from his new season of Profiles, that's OH Profiles with an OH, about the Cleveland radio station behind the World Series of Rock, 
the buzzard wmms uh, 100.7 in the land his great show the wrath of the buzzard we'll play some clips from that as well as sit down with vince we got a ton to get to in the season seven finale so put on your vip wristband go grab an overpriced beer it's episode 12 ohio burst festivals today with a failed festival from 1980s Cleveland, a city trying to rebound from a pretty disastrous 1970s known as the mistake by the lake, Cleveland was trying to rehab its image in the 1980s and having some success doing so. But when the city and the Cleveland United Way decided to host Balloon Fest 86, they took a big swing and a mess. Not only was the city's life disrupted greatly on that September afternoon, you could argue that two lives were lost to this failed festival. It was that bad. How can a festival go that wrong? We bring in Chris McNeil, one of my favorite social media follows. You can find him at reflog underscore 18 on Twitter. That's just golfer backwards reflog. But Chris is a Cleveland sports commentator, has his own show. I highly encourage you, if you're a Browns fan or a person who likes poking fun at Browns fans, uh, to become one of his half a million followers on on Twitter. Chris jumped on to talk about Balloon Fest 86. He was even wearing a Balloon Fest t-shirt that a fan had sent uh, sent to him. We started by talking about why even do something like this. The stated goal of the event was to break Disneyland's 1985 world record of 1.2 million balloons. Cleveland's going to go for 2 million. Chris McNeil discusses the phenomenon that was 1980s balloon releases. And they really wanted to do something that was a huge impact. And at that time, and I remember this from being a kid, you know, we have 5Ks right now. Boy, those balloon releases were a big deal. Like I went to school and it seemed like we were having a balloon release about every two to three months for some some kind of a cause, right? And uh, at that time, you didn't really think much of it. You thought, oh, how beautiful. And boy, this is really striking to see all these balloons up here in the sky. And we didn't really think about those balloons coming down necessarily. Not your problem. Outside of, you know, you'd always hear the random story where a balloon lands in like Canada or something. And it's like, oh, that's cool. Some kid up there found our balloon. You know, that's a neat deal. So, of course, you know, doing the bigger and better thing, which is what every city tries to do, and especially Cleveland, you know, trying to elbow your way and and kind of make your own niche, uh, wanted to get into the Guinness Book of World Records for largest balloon launch ever. That was the genesis of the idea. Each kid is going to do uh, correctly about 700 balloons or so uh, for the day, and, and we'll do it in about four to six hours, all the balloons. Don't remember, folks, don't park on the square because this ain't the place for your car this weekend. <laughs> Back to you. Sounds like fun, David. Thank you. I understand you. we might have a northerly wind, too, so they'll all wind up over Canada. <laughs> <laughs> all right, there's what we call foreshadowing, that laughter from the news anchors. Cleveland in the 1980s is on the upswing, a classic case of nowhere to go but up. One of the most popular episodes of ours is Ohio vs. Pollution. We tell the inside story of the 1969 Cuyahoga River Fire. You can go find that one on our iTunes or our website, ohiovtheworldpodcast.com. And all our episodes can be found at evergreenpodcast.com. That episode from 2019, it's a top five most listened to episode for us. But also in the 1970s, the city defaulted. Cleveland went bankrupt, basically, in 1977. So he said anything would be an improvement from insolvency and rivers catching on fire, but things were happening in Cleveland in the 80s. The Rock Hall was on the horizon. The Gateway Project, the Galleria Mall downtown was about to open uh, in 1986. 
the flats are becoming a nightlife destination. Not to mention my Cleveland Browns are one of the best teams in the NFL, the whole 1980s, really. Chris tells us about how the Balloon Fest fits into the Cleveland Renaissance of the 1980s. Throughout the 80s, Cleveland coming back, you had that old school, you know, bring your lunch pail to work and wear your hard hat. Uh, it was it was the times post the river caught on fire and all those jokes where we were really coming back as a city in Cleveland, right? You had the mainstay, the Cleveland Browns, going from Brian Sipe to Bernie Kosar. Bernie Kosar, the hometown guy from Youngstown. But really, it was a resurgent time for Cleveland. Maybe a little insecure about who you are as a city, but at the same time, it, it truly an optimism in what the city could be, what it could become. And I think you kind of see that growth through the 80s. So this is a big plus for Cleveland. Oh, it's something that, you know, they predicted 70% chance of showers today. And I think this is a prime example of what United Way is trying to do in terms of saying, it's Cleveland, it's your time. It's time to say yes. It's time to say it is a happening city. We are on the move. It's no longer the butt of jokes or anything. We'll be playing clips throughout this episode from these different failed Ohio festivals. But on September 27th, 1986, Balloon Fest was ready to launch. The plan was to launch 2 million balloons into downtown Cleveland, set them off from Public Square, and there's incredible logistics that go into this. It's a six-month effort to get this plan off the ground. Problems that should have been obvious to see were not. We aren't even talking about the environmental concerns of releasing 2 million latex balloons into the city. No one really cared about that stuff that much back then, especially in the Rust Belt. But the labor was mostly child volunteers from United Way, and they had issues in tying and filling all these balloons. We're trying to fill 2 million balloons here on Public Square. And also the weather in Cleveland, very windy, very unpredictable. Chris takes us through some of the pre-launch problems with Balloon Fest 86. Just like so many things in Cleveland, you know, you have all this well-intentioned planning of what this thing is going to end up being. I, I believe they brought out a bunch of kids to help, um, you know, string up the balloons or tie up the balloons and you had adults. And if anybody ha- has done that for like two balloons, you know what it does to your fingers, let alone if you're expected to do tens to hundreds of balloons all by yourself. And then imagine if you're kids, you're basically child labor out there putting these things up there. And uh, so that created problems right off the bat. You had what were willing participants that became unwilling. Okay, Tanya, show everybody what you have on your hands there. What are those? Tape bandages. Okay, and what are they for? They're for getting away from sores, sores from your hands. Okay, did you get any blisters? Yeah, three. Are you having a good time? Yeah. Are you tired? Yeah. Okay. On top of that, you had the weather. You know, the weather obviously being there by Lake Erie, it changes uh, quite a bit. And that's what they got. They had some rain come in and they knew it was coming. And so they ended up releasing the, the balloons, I believe, early to try and accommodate that. So they couldn't quite make it to the two million that they wanted to release. They went with 1.5. And then you had the low clouds, you had the rain coming in that kept those things low and a low trajectory, and many of them didn't get very far. The launch gets bumped up due to the weather, and we hear the excitement of the launch. If you look at the cover of our episode, it's right off that moment when the balloons in Golf Terminal Tower, the iconic skyscraper on Cleveland's Public Square, brace yourself for this annoying enthusiasm of the event's MCs as nearly 1.5 million balloons take flight in Cleveland. Ten, nine, eight, seven, six, 
five, four, three, two, one. Here they go. Amazing. And the band is up. And there they go, John. The Guinness Book of World Records has just been broken in Cleveland. Over 1,500,000 balloons. It's completely covering the terminal tower. We did it, John. This is it. Let's do it for Cleveland. mistake on the lake anymore. Cleveland has now broken the Guinness Book of World Records and released over 1,500,000 balloons. The problems begin almost immediately. The weather shift and the rain starts bringing down these balloons shortly after their launch, and they're everywhere. Traffic accidents are reported. Thousands of balloons are coming down on motorists. The airport is shut down for 30 minutes by air traffic control. Makes a very unsafe aviation situation there. But the biggest problem is that there are 900,000 of these multicolored balloons come down just off the shore in Lake Erie. That northerly wind that our news anchors were chuckling about in the first clip has become a problem. Again, not just the ecological impact of 900,000 balloons on a major body of water, unexpectedly, but the before the launch of the balloons, two men, two Cleveland men, Skip Sullivan and Raymond Broderick, had gone overboard in their boat in the water off Edgewater Park near the, on the near west side. The balloons make their rescue nearly impossible for the Coast Guard. Not only did it tie up traffic all around the city, like immediately, it also caused problems over at Burke Lakefront Airport. Uh, they were having problems with flights coming in, flights going out. At that time, Burke was a lot used a lot more than what it is right now. In addition, unfortunately, there were a couple of, of fishermen who were out there on Lake Erie, and all of the balloons hampered the recovery efforts. It's been an exhausting search for these Coast Guardsmen. They've been out on the water most of the day looking for two 40-year-old Cleveland men, Skip Sullivan and Raymond Broderick. They went out fishing about an hour before last night's heavy storm blew through. This is their boat, a pair of life jackets still in it, along with a hat and a fishing pole. The boat's motor is gone. Its sides are battered, apparently, from pounding all night against this section of the break wall off Edgewater Park. That's where the Coast Guard found the boat about 8.30 this morning. Ironically... That big balloon launch in Cleveland today is one of the things that's making this search so tough for the Coast Guard. Can you imagine trying to find somebody floating out here or even spotting a life jacket with all these balloons on the water? It's like trying to find a needle in a haystack here because you're you're looking for more or less a head or an orange life jacket. And here you have a couple hundred thousand uh, orange, orange balloons and it's just hard, hard to decipher which is which. their lives that day. The Coast Guard had to call off the search because the water was littered with so many brightly colored balloons, any rescue attempts had no chance. The United Way of Cleveland actually settled out of court with one of the families. Truly tragic ending to Balloon Fest 86 in Cleveland. Chris McNeil talks about the negative impacts of that launch. So it caused quite a bit of calamity all throughout the city. On top of, you know, you get 1.5 million balloons going up into the atmosphere. They're coming down into Lake Erie. Some of them made them over, made it all the way over into Canada. Just what you're doing to the environment, just the immediate environment there of all this latex all over the city. It ended up being a disaster for cleanup, 
um, for, you know, anybody trying to get out and around at that time. And I, ultimately, you know, they had this idea of raising all kinds of money. I think it was like $2 a balloon is what people were donating or something along those lines. So, you know, right there, you get 1.5 million balloons, you got 3 million. What if you were planning on two, maybe you had 4 million, but, uh, it ended up being a net loss because of everything that they had to do in terms of cleanup, in terms of obviously the lawsuits that had come out of this from the fisherman's family. It was really a disaster on every single level. Um, I don't even know if the people who were there enjoyed much of a balloon fest. Because of weather, 60% of the balloons launched landed here instead of the planned 10%. Many of them were found on Lake Erie. But the balloons that covered the lake and caused concern on Saturday are no longer here today. No one's quite sure where they went. I know where they went. The majority of them went to Canada. The Canadian government was none too pleased when they show up a few days later, causing issues in two countries now. It's Balloon Fest, an international incident. The Cleveland City Council passed a new ordinance earlier this year, some 35 years after Balloon Fest 86, to make it illegal to release 10 or more balloons in the city limits. It's a minor misdemeanor, non-jailable offense, but nonetheless, Cleveland has banned balloon releases in the city known for having the most catastrophic balloon release in American history. And Balloon Fest 86 did nothing to help Cleveland shed that label of being this national punchline, this cursed city, this mistake by the lake. I think everybody involved with this thing just thought it was a disaster. In fact, I I think I read that it was so much of a disaster Guinness Book of World Records will no longer validate any balloon releases anymore. They have one of their stipulations is they will not validate something that's harmful to the environment or causes all kind of um, you know harm to people. So I, I think the what happened in Cleveland uh, helped them to decide that they would no longer validate these balloon releases. Our guest Chris McNeil is also known for hosting another downtown event in Cleveland. He was the man behind the perfect season parade in Cleveland following the Browns' 0-16 winless season in 2017. Thousands of Browns fans showed up, gathered downtown outside the stadium to ironically commemorate the worst season in professional football history. The sad thing is Chris was prepared to host that protest of Browns futility the year before, in 2016. The Browns were 0-14 on Christmas Eve, their final home game that year. They miraculously won a game with a last-second block field goal to beat the San Diego Chargers. They would finish 1-15 that year, but Chris was relieved. He had been taking fire for hosting this event. It was a simple tweet that he sent out that just got way out of hand. But community leaders, Browns fans, not me, certainly uh, the Browns organization and players themselves were all giving him crap about it. But he was at that game with that win to go 1-15 in 2016. The parade was, was canceled. It was only two weeks away. He was off the hook. He no longer had to go through with it. He's able to donate the money, all the money, to the Cleveland Food Bank. He had his Hollywood happy ending. But it's just never that easy with the Cleveland Browns. They were threatening the next year in 2017 to go winless again. We talked to Chris about the perfect season parade in 2017 and the headaches that I deal with all the time when it comes to putting together special events in, in Cleveland or other major cities. Like a typical Browns fan, you celebrated too early. Too early. Right. Well, and also one of the mantras we like to say is, well, maybe next year. And sure enough, next year, it took about, oh, I don't know, the first, second quarter of the first game before people were asking me, 
hey, are those parade permits that you got for last year, are those still good? And, you know, I'd respond and play along on Twitter. And then you got four games in, then you got five games in, you get right around November. And both years, it was right around Thanksgiving where it was like, uh-oh, this might happen. I may actually have to make this thing happen. So I start putting in for, you know, all the formalities you have to do, you know, putting in for the parade permits, going and looking for security, porta potties, you know, shutting down the roads, meeting with Cleveland City Council, meeting with the heads of all the different departments. I mean, there's a lot of logistics to this. That stupid tweet caused me a whole lot of work on the back end that I did not intend to, to, to you know, have when I, when I sent that thing out. I mean, what a nightmare that ended up being. Thousands braved freezing temperatures to be a part of a parade dedicated to the worst NFL record of the season. Oh, and 16, and you guessed it, we're talking about none other than the Cleveland Browns. Well, they may have had an imperfect season, but it does certainly seem like these Cleveland Brown fans aren't going anywhere anytime soon. Thousands of diehard Browns fans gathered outside of First Energy Stadium for a team that many would call the worst in the NFL. I am a Browns fan till I die. But this was a very sad, sad season. The parade turns into a platform of protest for some. We're here to let the owners know we would like a change. Coldest day, I think, of the oh, year. What was oh. it, three, three degrees, two degrees? Three degrees. And the rumor was, with the wind chill there on the lake, it was negative 16. For poetic reasons, oh, and 16, right? 16 below, it was perfect. Once again, one of the many things that I baked into there, right, for poetic justice. We also walked around the stadium, which forms a big zero. It was really a protest. We deserve better as fans. The Cleveland Browns ownership, the Haslam's, got that message loud and clear. Uh, the Browns were not a big fan of uh, this whole parade idea, of course. And uh, that was kind of the neat thing because it's all public lands right around the stadium there. And so we were able to take control of that and do it right there at the stadium, right in high visibility of the Haslam's to let them know that, hey, this is a very proud town, especially when it comes to our football. And uh, we're very passionate about the Browns and we expect better. Now, it would have been a nice story for me to be sitting here, you know, in 2022. Flashing your Super Bowl ring. And then since that time, we've got two Super Bowl rings. We've got a franchise quarterback, and we've got a coach that everybody loves, and we've got a solid defense, and we've got an awesome offense, and things are great in Cleveland. But as we always say, maybe next year. Flora 92 is truly a once-in-a-lifetime experience, a true celebration of discovery. Ameriflora 92 in Columbus, Ohio, our second festival of this episode, an international horticultural exhibition. But it's much more than just flowers. It's a six-month exhibition that the city hoped would bring in five or six million patrons. Ameriflora is not the failure in the same way Balloon Festival is. This is an economic failure, a messaging and planning failure. Or as my aunt put it when I asked her about her impressions of Ameriflora, she just said one word. Didn't say anything else. She said she, it was underwhelming. 
I went to Ameriflora as a kid, and even though there were lots of things for kids to do, I still found it pretty underwhelming. It was supposed to be a two-week event at, the, at first to highlight the 500th anniversary of Christopher Columbus's discovery of America, but it grew into a six-month massive project involving nearly $100 million to be put into it, $33 million of which were public funds. Ameriflora 92 began with a lot of hype, and even was opened by a visit from the first family, George H.W. and Barbara Bush. They opened that exhibition with some help from Bob Hope and others, and the event was supposed to put Columbus on the map. Ameriflora 92 was recognized as this nation's premier quincentennial celebration. In a spectacular opening ceremony broadcast around the world, a host of dignitaries joined in to commemorate Ameriflora 92, America's celebration of discovery. But it's great to be here, and it's my thrill, ladies and gentlemen, to present right now the President of the United States, right here. And it's great to be back in Columbus, this wonderful city where my dad was born and grew up. And we know ours is one world, an interdependent world. And the American spirit enriches the human spirit, brave, unafraid, and above all, free. And now, it is my pleasure to introduce someone who, who's blessed my life, the life of the Bush family. For two years, she has been your honorary patron of this marvelous fair, uh, my wife, our First Lady, Barbara Bush. You know, George's and my Ohio ancestors would be very surprised and very proud, I know, to see us here today as part of this very special occasion. And now, it's my great pleasure, as honorary patron of Ameriflora 92, to announce, let the ceremonies begin. Ladies and gentlemen, thank you for joining our special guests for the grand opening of Ameriflora 92. Our second guest is Tim Tratt. Tim runs Only in Seabus, a media company, a brand booster through things like his widely followed Only in Seabus Instagram page, which is a great follow. But Tim delves into the history, the architecture, the city planning type content of Columbus and Central Ohio. I highly suggest you follow. It's not just your normal Instagram page with pictures. Go to the website onlyinseabus.com. There's all kinds of stuff going on with Tim and Only in Seabus. But he was kind of the perfect person to look back at Ameriflora with. And he was there as a young kid as well. I'm 36. So when, when Ameriflora came out in 92, I was, uh, I didn't understand economics. <laughs> I mean, I wouldn't say I understand economics currently, <laughs> but right. uh, um, you know, it was a celebration of 500th anniversary, but they really wanted to produce this festival to bring in crazy amounts of people, five and a half million viewers. The big thing was it cost almost a hundred million dollars in 1992 which basically with inflation from 92 to now, you can essentially double things. A horticultural exposition, I think that the idea was really cool. I just think that there was uh, some expectations that they weren't prepared for. Columbus, Ohio, my hometown, is the 14th largest city in the country. It's the second biggest city in the Midwest behind Chicago. Now, if you want to get into metro areas, that's kind of a different story. Certainly Detroit is larger, Um, but Columbus is a city on the rise. It's a growing city in the Midwest. It became a popular corporate headquarters in the late 20th century, early 21st century, nationwide insurance, Honda, L Brands, Abercrombie, Safelite, Intel is moving in, uh, not a headquarters, but a giant multi-million dollar plant. 
But when Tim and I grew up here, it was not this growing, booming Midwestern hub. It was a sleepy state capital, had little to no identity. It was in that search for city exposure that Ameriflor was able to even occur. Tim's family moved here when AEP, American Electric Power, moved its headquarters here uh, in the 1980s. We talked with Tim about 80s and 90s Columbus, and he shares with us a video that AEP made to try and convince its employees to move to Columbus from New York in 1979. Just to, We'll put it up on our Facebook and our Instagram, but just a hilarious video. Columbus in the 80s and 90s was definitely different than it is now. I think something like this uh, could have only happened in the late 80s, early 90s. I don't think that they'd be able to pull this off now. I think people would would fight it. The 80s and 90s were like the peak of the downtown exodus. Our, our, our downtown population peaked in the 50s. The impact of moving everybody to suburbs, uh, cars, parking, all those things that were such a very big priority then that should looking back, maybe shouldn't have been. So the the 80s and 90s were a weird time. We moved here from, my parents uh, from New York worked for AEP who moved their headquarters here. They made an awesome hype video for the city, which if you get a chance to go look at that, like why you should move to Columbus, it's hilarious. I have the full video on my YouTube page. If you get a chance, go look at it. Home prices were comical. It was like $4 for a house. But that's when my parents moved here from, from New York. And so the the experience they were sold and what was here, I think is a little bit different. Living in Columbus is an enjoyable experience for many reasons. Among them is the wide range of cultural activities. Traditionally, Columbus has been a very warm and welcoming city for the newcomers. And today, the great majority of our community, believe it or not, are non-natives. We have an area called Grandview. Grandview is a near northwest suburb of about 10,000 people. There's 10 minutes or less to downtown with good neighborhood shopping facilities. Most homes in Grandview are between 25 and 50 years old. There's a good selection of homes between the prices of 40000 and 60000 Our guest Tim Trad talks about the financial failure that was Ameriflora. I do remember people being alarmed that tickets were $20. That's a lot of money in 1992. You don't know exactly what the event even is. We'll talk more about that, but Tim tells us about the financial investment into Ameriflora that proved to be pretty unwise. We'll hear from the director of Mariflora talking about where all the money went in an interview during the final days of the festival. $95 million, and then again in $92, you can basically double it. Even at that time, $95 million was a lot to produce a six-month temporary thing. 200 people employed full-time to create that, and then that doesn't include all of the booths and part-timers and stuff like that. I don't have any, any data for the total, but there was 200 full-time. They predicted or they were expecting between five and a half and six million people to show up. And I think only two showed up over the six months. Uh, tickets were, I believe tickets were $20. And again, you can double that. So you're looking at a $40 ticket to get in. The response from most people was, was underwhelming. It's about a $95 million event. Uh, $30 million of that is from public sources. Uh, it's a combination of uh, federal, state, county, and city funds. So the rest of the 95 came from? Combination of uh, gate revenues, corporate sponsorship, uh, concessions, uh, disposable assets. We're now about, uh, here we are, what, 14 days from closing. Uh, there's a tremendous amount in this park that will now be disposed of. Uh, 
from small things like park benches to big things like the uh, discovery, the whole Discovery Pavilion, for instance, uh, gets dismantled and sold. So those assets, of course, are all be sold off. That's part of the revenue as well. And, uh, and of course, uh, the corporate underwriting and guarantors. Those sources all make up the balance of the $95 million. One of the biggest obstacles to attracting millions of people from across the country, as the organizers had hoped, was people didn't know what Ameriflora was. Tim argues that the organizers themselves didn't really know what Ameriflora was. It starts as this horticulture exhibition, and it's also a shopping destination, entertainment, and nightlife. It's a theme. Is it a theme park? Is it like a World's Fair? And then also in 1992, it's problematic to say, you know, that you're celebrating Christopher Columbus in some circles. The organizers tried to stay away from that type of branding as the festival closed in, but it's the 500th anniversary of Columbus's landing in the Bahamas. I mean, there's no way of getting around that. We talked with Tim about the branding issues Ameriflora had that may have led to its lackluster attendance. There were a bunch of, of public shortcomings, one being the marketing of what was it, right? It's just America's celebration of discovery is what their tagline was. Ameriflora 92, a kaleidoscope of color, an exploration of distant lands, a festival of plants and flowers. A discovery of the new and a salute to the old. A taste of the world, a staggering assembly of international entertainment, an adventure for children of all ages. A shopping extravaganza, an enlightening educational experience, and a lifetime of memories. It truly has something for everyone. Christopher Columbus uh, historically was not a great dude. There was a lot of pushback from people celebrating Columbus. Obviously, you can't change the past, but you can acknowledge it and learn from it and, and, and make it better. So I think there's ways to, you know, outside of changing the name to Flavortown, which we started a, a, a kind of a joke petition for last year uh, to, to try to, it's hard to separate something that's a namesake. So even then there was some pushback from it. I don't think it was heard as much as it is now. I mean, it is tough to think a flower show is going to bring in 5 million folks, but there's a small movement among Columbus residents today to change the name of our city. I will firmly say that's a bad idea, but Christopher Columbus statues in Columbus have come down. As an Italian-American, I'm not going to get into that issue on this show, but Columbus's legacy certainly cast a shadow on Ameriflora. In, in 1992, this is something the organizers were wholly unprepared for. We hear from Tim and, and even President Bush, again, at the opening of the ceremonies there. We hear from organizers, protesters, Native American activists, and patrons around Ameriflora. America's celebration of discovery, as the exhibition tag would say. Here in the largest city in the world, bearing the explorer's name, we honor Columbus for the same reason as people in Peoria or Prague. We believe that the individual can make a difference. The Native Americans also had a fair bit of um, discussions, negotiations, and heated, heated debate among themselves as to who was going to be here. It wasn't simply uh, Marathor negotiating with, uh, with the Native Americans. There were a lot of different groups that had different views on it, and it got uh, controversial among those groups as well. There have been uh, groups that have expressed uh, all kinds of opinions of Columbus and that whole discovery. Uh, and at, those, at that point, I think it, it was uh, probably fairly uh, topical. Um, what we did when we set up the event here, you know, our theme line was always America's Celebration of Discovery, and we tried to broaden the theme. There's nothing in the park that pays tribute to Columbus himself. Well, the title of the, the whole motto of the thing is the celebration of the discovery of what? Exactly. Well, that's why NASA's here. Of what? 
just discovery. Just discovery. 500 years of discovery? Yeah. What happened 500 years ago? Well, 1992 happened to be the year. It's the quincentennial. This is one of the quincentennial events, and that's, that's why the year 1992. When you, as a community, on the whole, celebrate 500 years of discovery, what you're saying to me is that I don't count. This group of protesters, exactly. Several different groups, but right? Were... Well, as as far as the Native Americans go, I feel that you know they have their right to their opinion and they have a voice, and I agree with the First Amendment. And I I believe as long as the protests are peaceful, there's nothing wrong with that. That's protests are how things get done. This is sad as a paying tribute, paying homage to a slave trader in this neighborhood. It's outrageous, and then charge you $20 to get into this place. This is crisis madness. Mayor would shut down on Columbus Day 1992. It was not a success. It did not put Columbus on the map. But it would be short-sighted to say it had an entirely negative impact on the city. Still hundreds of thousands of people came to Columbus, stayed in our hotels, ate at our restaurants. The biggest positive for the city was the renovations and the development of Franklin Park, where Mariflora was held. It's still owned by the city, a fantastic place. Miss Ohio vs. the World and I take our son there a lot. It's beautiful. But at what cost? $95 million dollars. And only a portion, maybe I think 15 or 16 million was spent on improving Franklin Park Conservatory and the Botanical Gardens there. Tim Trad from Only in Seabus, uh, follow Only in Seabus on Instagram. We'll hear more about Only in Seabus later in the show. But he talks about the lasting impact of Ameriflora here in Columbus. The good that came from it was it did completely renovate the Franklin Park Conservatory, um, which was pretty dilapidated. And now it is a very beautiful thing that has that was the turning point for it, right? Uh, so that I, th- I would say that was a lasting positive from this, very expensive, but lasting positive. But for me personally, the merch that came from it, the Ameriflora t-shirts are some of my favorite, absolute favorite Columbus all time, like the colors, the way that they did it and everything. So, I mean, you know, a lasting impact would be Overall, you could probably learn from the finances of it, but I still think that the story kind of, it's almost like one of those movies that fails in the box office becomes a a cult classic. (laughs) It's like something Columbus is known for. So they kind of invested in a thing that was initially a financial failure, but still we're talking about it 30 odd years later. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts. Cleveland is the home of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Many consider it one of the birthplaces of rock and roll thanks to a Cleveland DJ that popularized the term rock and roll, and he popularized the music as well. Alan Freed was inducted into the first class of the Rock Hall back in the 1980s. 
an earlier episode, we shared his story in the first rock and roll festival in Cleveland that, that pretty much went awry. Freed tried to put on a rock and roll show in Cleveland called the Moondog Coronation Ball. Five or six bands at the Cleveland Arena. It's one of these first Ohio failed festivals, and it nearly cost Freed his job in Cleveland. He never would have gone on to New York radio to do the TV shows and movies about the new rebellious American music. We're going to play you a clip from an old episode called Ohio vs. Rock and Roll when we sat down with the saxophone and guitar player from the popular Ohio rock band OAR. Friend of the show and Youngstown native Jerry DePizzo joined the program to talk about Alan Freed, the godfather of rock and roll, and the disastrous first ever rock and roll fest that he tried to organize in downtown Cleveland. It was called the Moondog Coronation Ball. Alan Freed's born in 1921, and he moves a small child to Northeast Ohio. We asked Jerry about Alan Freed and his start in radio here in the Buckeye State. In 1933, he moves to Salem, Ohio, uh, not too far from where I grew up in Youngstown. I've been to Salem. Yeah, uh, he was, uh, went to high school up there. Uh, he played trombone in high school. He had a band, the Sultans of Swing. Nice. Uh, you know, so he grew up in Northeast Ohio, graduates in 40, goes down to OSU, uh, starts studying radio, goes to, uh, goes to uh, World War II. He's on Armed Forces Radio as well, kind of gets a feel for it, you know, uh, cuts his teeth uh, overseas. Uh, when he gets back, uh, he, gets, he's, he, 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 he travels all over Northeast Ohio and, and Western PA, gets jobs in Newcastle. Uh, WKBN in Youngstown. He's doing sports. Uh, 1945, he gets uh, a job at uh, WAKR in Akron. And uh, that's where he really starts to take off and gain a following and get his footing in who we really know Alan Freed to be. Freed joins a station in Cleveland, WJW. I think it's now 8.50 a.m. It's a sports talk station up in Cleveland. You gotta love Cleveland Sports Talk Radio. It's the best in it's the best in the state. And Cleveland is metro area is the eleventh largest in the United States in 1950. But Freed meets a local record store owner and the Moondog Show, and subsequently rock and roll is born. Yeah, he's playing pre-Elvis rock and roll. Yeah. Basically the mouth of the river stuff. Uh, he has this great quote from 1956 film, Rock, Rock, Rock. Rock and roll is a river of music which has absorbed many streams. Rhythm and blues, jazz, ragtime, cowboy songs, country songs, folk songs, all have contributed greatly to the big beat. Rock and roll is an inherently American in the sense that it is a petri dish of really the influence of African-American culture blended into a pop form. Folks like Chuck Berry, and Little Richard are at the forefront of this. And these are the folks that Freed is picking up on. And these are the folks who are resonating with his audience and the young people in his area. Teenage culture develops after the war. They become fans of Alan Freed and, and this new music that they're hearing. Kids have cars, incredible freedom, uh, thanks to the prosperity in the 1950s in America. Uh, it affords this new demographic a lot of buying power buying power and importance uh, that's still seen today as one of the most key markets uh, for retailers and, and businesses. You know, there was no teenage culture or, you know, following the Civil War or during the Depression. It starts in the 50s, and it starts with Alan Freed. We asked Jerry about teenage culture and its connection to the birth of rock and roll. Pre-World War II, there is no room, there's no wiggle room for a teenage culture. You're probably working to be honest with you. And if you're 
if you're lucky, you're going to school. If not, you're probably helping your folks out in whatever the family business is. So the economic boom of post-World War II America, a middle class develops. When the middle class develops, wiggle room for teenage culture, disposable income, kids being able to buy records, buy concert tickets, travel. They have cars now. The radio exists in their living rooms. All of these things contribute to the fact that now they're able to create their own culture and have their own voice. And Alan Freed's the loudspeaker for it. In March of 1952, Friday night, March 21st, 1952, Alan Freed hosts the first rock and roll concert. And the disastrous result is, is exactly what parents and authorities and religious leaders were warning everyone about with this new form of music. It's dangerous. We asked Jerry about the famous concert, the Moondog Coronation Ball, held at the old Cleveland Arena in 1952. It's the very first and one of the best rock and roll moments of rock and roll. Alan expected 5,000 people to come to this dance. And I got to think at the time, too, I'm going back. Uh, in my own band, I dot all the I's and cross the T's on the production side of stuff. How's it going to sound? What's the equipment that we're going to use in order to give everybody a good experience when they come to a show? I can't imagine expecting 5,000 people and trying to produce sound for 5,000 people you know, in 1952. Right, with five or six different bands. It's, I mean, it had to be a total... I don't, I don't know how anybody heard anything. Yeah. You know what I mean? So to have... Expect 5,000, have 25,000 people show up for it. The logistics of the security of something like that, the traffic of something like that, the fact that everybody is probably between the age of 12 and 25, you know, is, I mean, it's a powder keg. Mm -hmm. uh, and it blows. Uh, they rush the doors. They blow through the front doors of the place. There's a stampede. Uh, you know, property's damaged. There's fights. Freed was blamed for this basic riot downtown. He goes on the air the next night on Saturday night to defend his movement, really to save his job. And he ushers in the rise of rock and roll following the Moondog Coronation Ball. Hello, everybody. This is Alan Freed speaking. And friends, I want to have a little talk with you before we begin our regular Moondog show tonight about the horrible disappointment of many thousands of folks who tried to attend our coronation ball at the Cleveland Arena last night. And believe me, I come to you very humbly and with deep regret in my heart because of the great disappointment that thousands of you who've been my friends suffered last night. And believe me, I want to say that I suffered right with you. If anyone, even in their wildest imagination, had told us that some 20 or 25,000 people would try to get into a dance... Well, I suppose you would have been just like me. You probably would have laughed and said they were crazy. Now, as everyone who was inside for the first hour of the dance will testify, we were having a real great time until the crushing pressure of some 10,000 people still outside smashed open the doors of the arena and converged on the inside. When that happened and some 7,000 persons without tickets bulged the insides of the arena, the whole show went out of control. Now, friends, that's the story, and that's the truth. Now, I'd like to have you do this for me tonight when you call in your request to our Moondog show on this Saturday night. I would like to have you tell Dean on the telephone when you call in that you are with the Moondog.
special thanks again to Jerry for, for joining us. Follow OAR on all their social medias. They had a big tour this summer across the country. And looking to go into OAR helps host a huge music festival on the beach and every September in Ocean City, Maryland. It's called Ocean's Calling. You can go to oceanscallingfestival.org. Uh, that's not a failed festival, but they did actually have to cancel this year due to the remnants of Hurricane Ian blowing through the area. But again, Ocean City, Maryland, such a cool spot and a really cool festival they put on there called Ocean's Calling Festival. They'll be back next year. Thanks to Jerry for, for always being a big supporter of the show and of, of history in general. But speaking of big music fests, our last festival for this season finale episode is the 1979 World Series of Rock concert at Cleveland Municipal Stadium. We somehow always end up at Cleveland Municipal Stadium once or twice a season and go listen to what I think is one of our best shows, which was last season's season finale, Ohio versus Beer, about the infamous 10-cent beer night at, at the craziness that ensued at the stadium that evening in a game between the Cleveland Indians and the Texas Rangers, a game that was never even completed due to the drunken rioting. The classic Ohio versus the World episode there, uh, again, called An Oral History of 10-Cent Beer Night. You can go to our website, ohiovtheworldpodcast.com or evergreenpodcast.com or any, you know, anywhere you get our previous 98 episodes, iTunes, wherever. Just scroll down and look for An Oral History of 10-Cent Beer Night. But today we're going back to the Cleveland Municipal Stadium for some classic rock glory. The World Series of Rock was a series of all-day festival shows hosted in Cleveland, and one of the main partners was the iconic Cleveland Rock radio station, WMMS, 100.7 The Buzzard. The station still exists today, but The Buzzard is part of a new evergreen podcast show from our friend Vince Tornero. His second season of his show Profiles, Profiles with an OH for Ohio, Profiles, uh, focuses entirely on the rise and fall of The Buzzard. It's called The Wrath of the Buzzard, excellent season of the show. Talking with all the old DJs and employees at the radio station, it's heyday, play some incredible clips from the show. From one of the biggest and most important stations in the rise of rock and roll in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, Vince tells us about WMMS 100.7, The Buzzard, in Cleveland. Oh, it's not in LA, it's not in New York. I mean, Cleveland was, in the mid-70s and eking into the 80s, the hotbed for, for rock. The radio station broke a lot of acts, took a lot of, you know, edgy opportunities, they would play bootlegs. They would uh, have a lot of ways that they would uh, record, um, you know, advanced tracks like record promoters would come into the radio station, play an advanced track, uh, you know, uh, management would have it recorded uh, and then replay that on the weekend and have an exclusive world premiere, you know, even before the albums uh, had made it public weeks before, you know, a thing well enough that it was like, how'd they get this? And so, WMMS was on the absolute forefront when it came to breaking acts. David Bowie was selling out shows in Cleveland, you know, before he was doing anything in England uh, to that extent. Um, you know, Rush, obviously one of the biggest fabled ones when Working Man played, people thought it was Led Zeppelin. So for multiple reasons, including the World Series of Rock, uh, WMMS was the most cutting edge station, I think, in the country uh, at that time. And at the very least, one of the most iconic radio stations in the U.S. In 1974, Belkin Productions, in conjunction with the Buzzard radio station, put on the first World Series of Rock. They brought in the biggest names in music to Cleveland. These festivals were bringing 80,000 people for some of these shows. They'd have a couple during the year. Vince will tell us about the World Series of Rock, one of the biggest festivals in the world, lasting from 1974 to 1980. The story goes that the reason why they called it the World Series of Rock 
is because the then Indians were never going to go to the World Series. So let's bring the World Series to Cleveland. And so Jules Belkin, who was an incredibly talented concert promoter in Cleveland uh, at that time, was uh, really tight with WMMS. And so, you know, kind of that synergy between those two parties created the World Series of Rock. And this was a multi-act day-long concert with acts like the Stones, ELO, Aerosmith, Bob Seger. I mean, practically you name it, they probably played the World Series of Rock, ACDC. You know, it's incredible. I mean, some absolute, without question, icons of rock played the World Series of Rock. And they were stacked back to back to back, you know, just day-long shows. It's just insane stuff that just you would not see today. And so these were held at uh, Cleveland Stadium, the uh, multi-purpose stadium that held uh, the Tribe, and the uh, and the Browns. Uh, it was held where First Energy is today. It's like 80,000 plus people. I mean, keep in mind, the stadium itself held like 78,000 uh, seats. Uh, there were people, 80, 85, 88 plus people, 80,000 people filling this. I mean, and tickets were tickets were around 12 bucks uh, to today's standards. Uh, that's, uh, you know, $50. So for 50 bucks, you know, you can see the Rolling Stones, you could see ACDC, you could see Aerosmith, you could see ELA, you could see all these bands for just 50 bucks. Oh, yeah. Again, go find his show, The Wrath of the Buzzard, on iTunes, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. You can find it again at evergreenpodcast.com. Uh, he's on the same network as us. We want to play you this clip from episode four of, of Wrath of the Buzzard, where they first discuss the World Series of Rock. There's a link in the show notes to, to profile second season all about the rise and fall of American rock radio. The Buzzard lived up to its Concert Connection branding with regular shows in downtown Cleveland, whether it be the Coffee Break concerts, Live at the Agora, or other events put on by the Belkins. But nothing may ever top the day-long shows WMMS put on throughout the 70s at Municipal Stadium, known as the World Series of Rock. Here's Michael Shesky, former WMMS personality and author of Cleveland Radio Tales and Radio Days. These were the days of the big stadium shows, okay? And Municipal Stadium in Cleveland held 80,000 people. This was a great, great idea on behalf of the folks at MMS, John Gorman, Denny Sanders, the management and Belkin Productions. It's the mid-70s. Indians not going anywhere. We know we're not going to go to the World Series. So we created the World Series of Rock. And that was a home run. No, it was a grand slam. What we started doing was bringing all the major acts, Seeger, Rolling Stones, ELO, and they became day-long events, and it was sold out. You see everybody on the field, it was just packed. The World Series of Rock at the old Municipal Stadium was, you know, amazing. You get 80,000 kids inside the stadium. When things get that big, sometimes they get out of control. And it was no, you know, it was not Belkin that did it. It was not the, uh, certainly uh, the radio station's fault. It's just that you're dealing with 80,000 people, you know. And um, th those were also days of a lot of booze and drugs and everything else. That was back in the day when you could bring a cooler in filled with whatever. I mean, it was crazy. And you are walking on that stage and your eyes are scanning the crowd. There's cutoffs. There's halter tops. There's guys with their shirts off. There's beer. There's somebody spraying champagne all over the place. There's 
joints being passed around. You name it. It is a rock and roll crowd to the max. And it is as far as your eye can see. It's just, you know, it's a hot summer day and and people are thoroughly enjoying themselves. And of course, plumes of smoke everywhere. There were some great shows, but 1970s Cleveland, that was a rough place. A lot of crime, a lot of unemployment, and downtown Cleveland's just not a very safe place to be back then. But the World Series of Rock, they'd hold multiple shows, innings as they called them, uh, with huge names on the bill. Vince talks about the setup the night before, and people camping out. Why are they camping out before the 1979 show? Cleveland at that time, you know, generally speaking, was a relatively, you know, depressed town i mean you had factories closing down you got you know people you know don't go downtown you know um in the night and all that it was just not a great place and i think now obviously that's changed quite a bit it's very different john says that we decided to turn the city's liabilities into assets we're we're, we're gonna have great shows downtown we're gonna have the buzzard yeah it's the symbol of a you know of a dying city but yeah we're gonna do the buzzard so you know up yours in a way putting something like a live event downtown that really attracted people and gave downtown uh and gave cleveland uh new life and a and a new identity so they delivered something wmms and the world series of rock were a vehicle for a revitalization of cleveland uh, back in the 70s. And actually, I just talked to uh, John Gorman, who uh, former uh, station official. I mean, this guy was uh, going on about the uh, 79 show and he said he was backstage and he was like, who are these kids that just, you know, uh, got backstage? And well, it turns out it was the Scorpions. And so the Scorpions played. It was ACDC, Thin Lizzy, Journey, Ted Nugent and uh, Aerosmith. So the 79 show got out of control because people would, you know, camp out before it's just like it because and the reason why they camp out is because the shows are general admission so it's right. not like you have seat 1a and you sit here because they were just these free form <laughs> i'm sure lots of free love you know <laughs> at, at these events as well but yeah people would camp out uh i mean for crying out loud you get to see acdc and aerosmith and in one show like heck yeah i'm in like <laughs> i wish i could go to this today those folks camping out in downtown Cleveland the night before the show were sitting ducks. There's no police, no security, no cell phones in the area. It was just people hanging out, camping in an urban environment uh, in a parking lot at the stadium. In the 1970s, probably drinking pretty heavily, the situation there quickly spiraled out of control when roving gangs entered the area. They were violent. They were opportunistic. They had probably seen people camping in the years before these festivals. And a bunch of dangerous folks had the same idea. Let's go down there and rob these people late at night. And that's what they did. People got beat up, robbed at knife point, gunpoint. We talked with Vince Tornero about the violence that preceded one of the biggest and best rock festivals in the country. And Cleveland, back in the day, you know, you're, you're camping down there, you're asking for it. So you got a lot of, uh, a lot of people from out of town uh and, and lots of different types of folks people got shot according to some reports at least one fatality 
uh, multiple shootings, uh, robberies. I mean, because people are intense. He just uh, really was almost like a uh, wild west of rock and roll uh, outside of the uh, 1979 show. Actually, five people were shot that night, one fatally. But the show would go on. And great sets by ACDC, Ted Nugent, The Scorpions, Journey, a huge band in the 1970s and 80s. They were all supporting acts for the headliner. One of the biggest bands in the world, Aerosmith, out of Boston, Massachusetts. In the 70s, I mean, you had Led Zeppelin, The Eagles, The Stones, Aerosmith. Those are probably your biggest bands. Fleetwood Mac, who, who had played the World Series of Rock the year before. But this would be a historically bad show for Aerosmith. And the band would break up backstage. We talk with Vince about the drug-fueled drama between lead singer Steven Tyler and the lead guitarist Joe Perry. And we'll hear another clip from The Wrath of the Buzzards, Denny Sanders and John Gorman, two iconic Cleveland radio personalities recall their favorite moments from the World Series of Rock and that famous glass of milk that broke up Aerosmith. There were just a lot of drug issues uh, going on with the band where he was doing like cocaine inside the radio station and stuff like that. So they were headed down a really self-destructive pathway. Um, like Steven Tyler apparently was singing lyrics to one song and Joe Perry was playing another. Uh, the wives got in a fight backstage. And of course, there's their fabled glass of milk that was thrown against the wall. I mean, you'd expect to be like a glass of Jack or, you know, I don't know, <laughs> Schlitz or something. I don't know. But, you know, it, nothing. It was just it was a glass of milk. You know, it's like a kid. I mean, you know, we're dads, you know, <laughs> you know, our, our kids throw glasses of milk. Yeah, they had a fight backstage between the wives and a uh, pretty important show in the history of the band, but also in, in history of uh, Cleveland Rock in general, because that was the site of a uh, of a darker time for Aerosmith's history. World Series of Rock. Danny, we'll start with you. Your favorite World Series of Rock. The Pink Floyd Show. Why is that? Mm. I think it was the best sounding show. The sound system was incredible. I mean, for them to have the clarity of sound in a huge place like that is a neat trick. Those who were there might remember that just as Pink Floyd took the stage, this plane flew over the stadium, and then it started to drop. And it dropped and dropped and dropped. And then when it got dangerously low, just as Pink Floyd struck up their first chord, it took off with a roar and then took off into the sky. Wow. And I thought, whoa, it's <laughs> a hell of an intro. And the story I heard, and I don't know if it's apocryphal or it's actually happened, it fell off the radar off the air traffic control center. And the guys panicked and said the plane dropped into the city of Cleveland. Oh, my God. And all these alarms went off. And uh, I don't know how true the story is, but evidently when they landed the plane, they immediately got some big fine, which they had anticipated and worked into the uh, contract. <laughs> they knew they were going to get fined, so they had the payment uh, already prepared. To, to see that, and we were sitting in the uh, uh, in the press, press, box. press box, yeah. So I mean, we saw this thing coming right at us. Wow, that would be an incredible experience. But uh, for you, what was uh, your most favorite incredible experience at a World Series of Rock, Mister well, John Gorman? It, it's usually what came around. Them. There's a lot of World Series of Rocks that are great. You know, uh, I just happen to witness Aerosmith breaking up after that terrible concert they did. Uh, band was not getting along. Uh, they were drugged out beyond belief. I remember during the concert, Stephen Tyler singing one song and Joe Perry starts playing another. They were breaking up on stage, and after after it was over, it was one of the 
Bands' wives threw uh, a glass of milk at Joe Perry's wife, and the, it just dissolved from there. And I just happened to see that. I was just at the wrong place at the right time, you know, to witness that. But it was usually what happened around the World Series of Rock. Uh, one time when the Beach Boys played, Carl Wilson came down to MMS to play guest disc jockey, and Dennis came with him, but then Dennis disappeared. And it's like, where in the world is Dennis? And, you know, we're looking all over the place. And it turned out we were at, at the time the station was at 55th and Euclid. Dennis walked into a, a, the Apollo Lounge and he's buying everybody vodka shots. As he's buying vodka shots, he's taking another shot. And, I mean, he had to be carried out of there. Wow. Yeah, you know, every, every time Dennis Wilson came to town, the, the stories, you, you could do a whole podcast about Dennis Wilson, believe me. Yeah, so lots of great things that happen around the World Series of Rock, and uh, some things maybe you wish you... Uh... And yeah, the 79 show did put a little damper on the festival's legacy, but still goes down as one of the most successful rock festivals of the 1970s. Again, there's a link in the show notes to Vince's season-long show, The Wrath of the Buzzard. Uh, it's a show, like we said, on Evergreen Podcast Network as well. We want to thank Vince for joining the show and allow us to play some clips from, from his great new program. The World Series of Rock should not be defined just by the 79 show. Because yeah. if you look at, by and large, the history is, you know, I mean, there's people that fall, people get drunk, some ODs. It's not clean. It's not a clean history, but it's not as uh, wild and crazy as the uh, 1979 show because they did plan on having one later that year, like a few weeks later, I believe it was that August. That got canceled. They still had a show in 1980 with Bob Seger headlining and ended on a high note. So all in all, pound for pound, the uh, World Series of Rock was uh, definitely an iconic piece of uh, Cleveland history. From Garfield's tomb to the Serpent Mound From the big cities to the river towns First in flight making history There's so many books you need to see I like reading And I like reading canoe and Tyler too From the Queen City to Lake Erie Blue Edison and a man on the moon so many books, which will we choose? I like reading I like reading No book recommendations today. We've got two social media recommendations for our Ohio listeners, though. First, if you like to laugh, like, or even hate Cleveland sports, you've got to become one of the half million folks that follow our first guest, Chris McNeil better known as Reflog underscore 18 on Twitter. It's just golfer backwards. Uh, Chris is also part of two great internet we weekly shows. He'll tell us about uh, one that includes the man, the myth, the legend, 1980s Cleveland Browns quarterback, Bernie Kozar. We've got a couple of projects right now. First of all, listeners can find me at Reflog underscore 18. That's just golfer backwards. That's on Twitter. And then you can also find there, Pinned at the top is the Big Play Reflog Show. We do that every single week at 9 o'clock. You can also find it uh, wherever podcasts are available. On Mondays, right? 
on Mondays. Yeah. And we always have a guest, either a Cleveland athlete or a media member or somebody who's interesting. Um, and then we talk a lot of Cleveland sports. And then something we started up this fall for football season is the Bernie Kosar show. We have Bernie yeah. Kosar. We have Hanford Dixon. Oh, both top, of those guys. Top dog. Top dog started the dog pound. I mean, how fantastic is that? These guys break down plays uh, from the week before. They break down the game for the next week and then relive some of those moments that we're all familiar with from back in the day and tell us some of those great gems and stories. So. Thanks so much to Chris for joining us. Go to the Twitter box and follow Reflog underscore 18. Our second guest, another social media recommendation of ours, follow Tim Trad on Instagram at onlyincbus. If you live near or have family in Central Ohio, if you ever come to town, you're from here, it's a great source of info, stories, amazing pictures, and history about Columbus. Tim's not an influencer. He's what he terms a suggester. He promotes products and businesses on that site that he likes. Uh, It's a small part of what he does. But we talk with Tim about only in CBUS and the difference between him and your average run-of-the-mill social media influencer. Only in CBUS kind of came along as a an accident. It was a it was a resume. That's what I always say. It, it literally was. I, I ran an agency and I needed to show companies that I was able to build an audience around information. And I sold that agency and retained those accounts. But I was just wanting to, you know, traveling all over the world. People thought I grew up on a farm, you know, for the one of the biggest cities in the country. Our reputation just wasn't solid. So only in CBUS was like, how do I tell the information that I wish I would have had? Right. And so it's not, I'm not trying like the term influencer, I think is somebody holding a can of something that they don't drink, trying to get you to drink it. Um, and so the reason I, I kind of coined suggester suggester was here are things that I'm interested in or things I've had a good experience with or things that I've had a bad experience with. I don't think you need to pretend like you love everything. Like you can be very critical of something you love, but the goal is not to push a specific agenda. It's not to become the next, you know, 10 TV eyewitness news or whatever, you know, it's just to, here is information. Here's my breakdown of that information. If it's not being, you know, reported in a way that I feel would be telling the story properly. And then just giving the thing that I wish I had. Right. And so like, if I'm looking for a place to eat or, what's going on or what does this document mean? Right. Or when's the voting day, you know, or, and that's where the suggester comes in because I do the stuff or try the thing or whatever, before I work on selling it. And there's a lot of companies that have reached out that I'm like, I'm not going to promote that because it's not a good service or, you know, I tried it and it sucked or, you know what I mean? So there's a, I think there's a level of honesty they say authenticity, but it's just very honest. Like if I'm if I'm going to promote apartment, I'm living there. You know, if I'm going to work with a company, for the most part, I've tried all of the things that I'm that I'm pushing. And I think that's what's different than an influencer, where they're like, "All right, you know, I'll give you a hundred dollars to promote this water." They're like, "This is the best water ever." That will do it for season seven of Ohio versus the World, guys. If you see me around this winter, ask me to tell you the story of my running away to Woodstock '99 as a high schooler. Uh, that was a wild three days. And watch that documentary, Trainwreck, on, on Netflix. Pretty accurate portrayal of what uh, will probably be the final Woodstock if that one ended in some pretty serious rioting and poor planning. Mrs. Ohio v. The World brought me a framed picture of, of Woodstock 99 with a ticket stub I keep in my office to remind me how not to build a festival. Still use that experience uh, in my day-to-day as a special event and permitting attorney across the state. Here's what's not to do. Cutting corners, selling out your festival goers, all those things that plagued some of these festivals we talked about. 
and certainly Woodstock 99. Thanks to Jerry DePizzo from the world-famous rock band OAR for talking about the Moondog Coronation Ball in 1952 with us, and of course Vince Tornero on the World Series of Rock and his great show Profiles and their new season about the Wrath of the Buzzard. We're about to get down to researching and reading for Season 8. We don't have a date yet, but Season 8 will start with our 100th episode, so look for that. Uh, We might do one or two little bonus episodes here during the winter uh, just to keep you involved, but Share this episode of Hyoverse Festivals and share the show. Don't forget to rate and review us. Just scroll down on Stitcher, iTunes, wherever. Give us that five-star rating that you know you want to. All that kind of stuff helps raise our show's profile and helps more history nerds like ourselves find this podcast. So thank you guys so much for listening. It's been such a fun season. Stay safe and prosperous this winter. Go Bucks, and we'll see you in 2023. Around 10,000 BCE, families and tribes of the ancestors to the people of Britain would arrive in the southern part of the island after crossing from land that bridged from Europe. The Welsh built houses, communities, kingdoms, and continued to survive through Romans, Saxons, Danes, and Normans. The language and culture influenced by these sources continued to change and thrive, becoming ancient and modern at the same time. Join me as we travel through the history, meeting the kings, queens, nobles, and everyday people that create and grew modern Wales from the seeds of the ancient past. Creoso, and welcome to the Welsh History Podcast.